I like to try to keep things fairly simple when it comes to practice and Dharma, Buddhist philosophy. In a lot of ways, I think we're in this practice just being asked three simple things. We're just being asked to meet all unpleasant experiences with compassion, to meet all pleasant experiences with non-clinging appreciation, and to not uh, take this mind and body and emotional process so personally. That's it. Compassion, non-clinging, and don't take it personal. (laughs) Really quite simple, uh, philosophically. Not so easy to do, so challenging to actually develop this practice of letting go, this practice of meeting our experience with compassion. And uh, breaking our identification uh, with the mind and body uh, and this sense of permanent self that the mind and body create. I'd imagine that at this point, three days into retreat, uh, many of you are seeing all of the things that are getting in the way all of the things that are hindering or blocking uh, compassion and non-clinging and uh, probably faced with the reality of how self-centered our minds are. The practice is so simple, but it's so difficult because we're kind of born into this biological, psychological, emotional process that's only uh, wired for survival. And part of the survival instinct that's probably obvious to you is the opposite (laughs) of what will create well-being. Rather than being wired for compassion, we're wired to hate pain. It's our survival mechanism. It's built into our bodies. You don't hate pain. Your body hates pain. (coughs) 
we're not born with a natural propensity towards compassion for our own pain. And likewise with pleasure. We're born into this body that attaches itself, this mind as part of the body that clings all by itself. You never told your mind to cling. It just does. And pretty clearly as we practice the Dharma and we tell our minds to stop clinging, it doesn't obey. <laughs> right? You came here to this retreat and you directed your heart and your mind to practice non-clinging and to practice compassion and to not to take the whole process so personally. And uh, our minds and, and bodies completely disregard our wishes. Continue to cling, continue to hate, continue to get uh, involved over and over in the dramas and stories. Uh, as how he likes to say, in the process of selfing. Just how the mind just creates self, self, self. All day long. One of the ways that the Buddha talked about uh, what is blocking our freedom or what makes this practice so difficult is in the classic list. Uh, he listed what you've been experiencing today. Craving for pleasure and lusting and wanting this moment to be different than it is. That gets in the way of being at ease, perhaps you've noticed. Aversion and anger and fear around pain. Completely natural, human, unavoidable, part of having a mind and body. And it really gets in the way of being at ease. Because we're always fighting, always pushing against. All of the unpleasant phenomena that happens when you take birth when you have a nervous system, when you have a mind and a heart. Unpleasantness comes with the territory. And then also uh, the experience of being uh, restless and anxious and this nervous animal body. This morning, somebody asked about, you know, I fear and fear of fear. And that restlessness, that anxiousness, that nervousness and fear that also is just completely part of our survival instinct. The body 
does it all by itself. And the flip side of the restlessness, anxious uh, tendency of, of our bodies is the uh, slothful, perhaps lazy, or tendency to procrastinate, or, or just to be dull and have a dullness of mind that often manifests these first couple days and of retreat and falling asleep constantly. And just having that kind of dull quality of not being able to stay present. And uh, the last on this list of hindrances is about uh, the doubting aspect of our minds. When we take our mind personally, when we're identified with the thoughts that are arising in our minds, um, and it's pretty clear that many of those thoughts have some uh, quality of doubting our ability, our worth. Or doubting the practice itself, doubting the path. It's, uh, if you come on retreat and you have some doubts about whether or not you made the right decision, that's completely normal. Of course. At some point or another, your mind is going to say, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Maybe this is the wrong path for me. Or maybe this is the wrong time for me. Or maybe this is the right path and the right time, but these are the wrong teachers. One of the things that I have just loved so much about practicing meditation and, and practicing and studying the Dharma is that uh, it's so liberating to understand that uh, all of these experiences that I used to take so personally aren't my fault aren't your fault. That it's not actually your doubt or craving or aversion or restlessness or sleepiness. That it's just part of the package. That it's just unavoidable part of being human. 
And uh, if we wish to be free, if we wish to be at ease and content, to have some sense of peace and happiness in our lives, then we have to relate uh, to the mind and these things that hinder ease. And of course, it's what you've been doing all day. Relating to your mind, your body, doing our best to be mindful, to be present with what's happening. And over and over, being faced with craving and aversion and doubt and restlessness and sleepiness. The good news is that it's not personal. Uh, that it's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> You're not doing this practice incorrectly. That's the good news. The other good news is that Uh, part of what our mindfulness does is it allows us to see more and more clearly uh, that it's not our fault, that these phenomena are impersonal, that they are not who we are, and also gives us the ability to start responding uh, more wisely to the hindrances to the craving, to the aversion, to the sleepiness and the restlessness and the doubt. When we develop present time awareness, there is hope for changing our relationship to our minds. Right? Mindfulness shows us the nature of our minds and uh, the hindrances that arise in the mind and the body. With mindfulness, we have some uh, free will of how to respond to what's happening. Without mindfulness, uh, human beings seem to be stuck in a habitual, reactive pattern of meeting pleasure with clinging and pain with hatred and causing suffering to themselves and others constantly. Without mindfulness, suffering happens all by itself. Your body clings, your mind clings. Your body hates, your mind hates. With mindfulness, we can see the aversion, the hatred, and do our best to develop some mercy, some compassion, some kindness. Some metta, loving kindness. Without mindfulness, we're just completely floating downstream, fueled by greed, fueled by hatred, fueled by confusion, ignorance.
as you're seeing in your practice, as you will see in your practice. Uh, this practice just is so powerful and, and transformative of our minds, of our hearts, of our relationship to being human. Perhaps the bad news is that um, these hindrances will never go away. Ever. Not in this lifetime, Jack. Not even if you become fully enlightened. Our only hope is to change our relationship to these experiences, not to get rid of them. I believe that uh, the Buddha in his enlightenment and in his uh, struggle for enlightenment, uh, he began to refer to these difficult human experiences as Mara. He kind of personified it as this uh, kind of attacker, being attacked by aversion, being attacked by lust, being attacked by doubt. And uh, I imagine every one of us is familiar with the story of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, taking that vow to say I'm going to sit here until I see what is causing suffering until I uh, understand how to end suffering and as he sits practicing mindfulness just as you've been sitting and walking practicing mindfulness he says and, and I'm attacked by Mara the armies of Mara And Mara attacks uh, with violence and hatred and resentment and, dis and spite and uh, this sort of vengeance. The picture in the, in the archetypal myth of the Buddha sitting there is that uh, arrows and spears and, you know, for us it's like heat-seeking missiles and AK-47s of ninja-throwing stars of resentment. It's like, that came out of nowhere. Ninjas. <laughs> and uh, through the development of, of the mindfulness practice, the Buddha is seeing uh, and I think also, as we do, and the Buddha did, trial and error. Uh, what have we, we've tried our whole lives to get rid of pain by hating it. Right? It's totally a failed experiment. It completely failed. You tried that already most of your life. And so the Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree has the awakening, has the realization, has the understanding. Uh, I can't 
fight hatred with hatred. I can't fight Mara with violence. Only with love. Only with compassion. Only by meeting this pain, the pain of anger, the pain of resentment, the pain of violence, of judgment, of fear, all of those unpleasant mental, emotional, and physical experiences with compassion. And so then, you know, the story is, Buddha radiates compassion and the attacks, you know, the the throwing stars and the nunchucks and the uh, arrows uh, transform from weapons into flowers, blossoms, roses, lotuses. That when we meet that aspect of Mara with love, with a heartful, kind, caring, merciful attitude. It diffuses the situation. It ends the suffering around the pain. And that's so important. And and I know you already know this. Uh, but I'll, my job to remind you tonight. Uh, compassion does not end pain. <laughs> Un- bright, bad news. I thought if I got compassionate enough, I could end all of the pain in my life. And it doesn't work like that. Meeting it with compassion just ends the hatred of the pain. Just ends the fear of the pain. Just ends the extra layer of suffering. It doesn't end the pain. It just meets the pain with a tender, merciful heart. So Buddha, Bodhitri, next, uh, Mara is sort of says, okay, that didn't work. And the hatred, uh, aversion, uh, this, this guy seems to have developed some skill of meeting that form of my attack. Uh, what if I try lust? How about craving? How about uh, the greatest uh, form of human craving built into our survival instinct, procreation, lust, sexual desire? Maybe I can push this guy off of his balance, off of uh, the ease by tempting with craving, with lust, with... Uh, I imagine that you've seen some lust in your mind these last days. whether it's lust for ice cream or it's lust for sex or it's lust for success. If I can just have a promotion, then I'll be happy. Or maybe even something simpler. If I just had a better meditation cushion. (laughs) Hasn't anybody created memory foam Meditation cushions yet? 
How about a waterbed, Zafu? I mean, if it was full of water, wouldn't that just be nice? And the Buddha sees through Mara's lust and says, oh, I get it, this is just my mind, this is just the body. It's just what the body does, it craves. It lusts. And I understand from direct personal trial and error that getting what you want, satisfying these cravings, never works. It never works, just giving in and satisfying, this craving is endless. No matter how many times we get what we want, it doesn't work. I don't know who was it that said something like, uh, the only thing more disappointing than not getting what you want is getting what you want. Because it's, it's so disappointing when you, then you have the orgy that you thought was going to really make you happy. And it's like, oh, that was really fun for an hour. And now I'm unhappy again. Or, you know, I shifted my posture. If I just, just move this leg, I'll be happy. For two minutes. On retreat, uh, it's so common to fall in love. There's this phenomena, the kind of retreat romance, vipassana romance. Because the body is a sexual body and it craves and then you make up stories about the other yogis and maybe you fall in love like every day with someone else and... <laughs> Or maybe you really have that one person and you didn't get to talk to him before the retreat, but you've really developed a, a intimacy in the silence. <laughs> and you're pretty sure he's the one. Pretty sure she's the one. And hopefully with mindfulness we can just see, oh, look at the, what, look what Mara's doing now. As the Buddha does under the Bodhi tree, oh, look at what Mara is doing now. Look at how these hindrance, how this is hindering my ability to be at ease. Not my fault, but it's just part of the package. Uh, and then the Buddha is attacked under the Bodhi tree by Mara with the, um, what's considered the most debilitating of the hindrances, uh, the experience of doubt. When uh, uh, the Buddha meets Mara with compassion and with non-clinging, non-attachment to the uh, cravings, non-identification. Then Mara uh, says, well, I have to use my kind of weapon of mass destruction. 
This tends to work on every human being. Uh, let me hit you with some unworthiness. And he says to the Buddha, who do you think you are? You're not worthy of freedom. Why do you think you get to be free? Nobody's free. Everyone's suffering. Why are you different? Why are you special? And so this is important because if you've been having these thoughts about, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I deserve this, I've been critical, judging, comparing yourself to others, comparing this experience to the last experience, all of the ways that doubt manifests. Important to realize Siddhartha Gautama also experiencing that at the uh, eve of his awakening, at the dawn of liberation for him, the last thing that's happening for him is doubt. There's Mara saying, his mind, Mara, you, you get it, right? Mara is your mind, <laughs> is the Buddha's mind. So maybe it's a good sign that you have doubt. Maybe it means you're really close to awakening. Perhaps. Maybe this is a good sign. I really don't think I deserve this. I must be close. The reason I say, okay, so then the Buddha meets that with confidence and he, uh, he touches the earth in, in the archetype, in the myth, and the earth bears witness and says, uh, yes, this, this, this man has been a bodhisattva, this being has, has done the work. I think part of also touching the earth is this sign of just like, I am worthy because I am part of this ecosystem. Just the fact that I am part of the uh, four uh, elements, earth and air, and that's it. If, you're part of, if, you are, if your body is made of the four elements, you're worthy. The Buddha touching the earth, part of this earth, worthy of liberation. So... The awakening, as I'm hearing it, is seeing through the mind's creation of aversion, the mind and body's creation of lust and doubt and restlessness and uh, sleepiness that go along with it. And it's what we experience on retreat. It's what we experience in our lives. It becomes much more uh, clear often on retreat. And the reason I say that uh, it's never going away, never permanently going away, is because, uh, and it feels like the Buddha said, okay, I banish you, Mara. I've seen through you. I shatter your, your creation of this separate, permanent self. I'm not buying it. 
And he kind of like, I think, I think that the Buddha thought Mara was going to go away forever. I've seen through your tricks. You don't have any power over me anymore. Meeting the hindrances with mindfulness and with kindness allows us to not take them personally, to respond appropriately. As I began, compassion, non-clinging appreciation, not taking it personally. The very next day, Mara returns to the Buddha. And uh, sort of like, hey, just checking in. (laughs) You still paying attention? Can I catch you slipping? Because uh, if you're not paying attention, hooked again into craving, into aversion, into doubt, into sloth. Throughout the Buddha's life, Mara was a constant companion. His fully enlightened experience was that this stuff continues to arise. Continues to arise. So, it's pretty clear that for us, our best bet is to make friends with it. Our best bet, uh, you know, if this is a battle and, uh, and, and Mara has the, these weapons of fear and doubt and hatred and resentment, uh, we only need really two, uh, two responses, two weapons. <laughs> I hate to use violent analogies, but you just need an Uzi. Uh, just kindness and awareness. Just kind awareness. The kind uh, awareness allows us to see what's happening as it's happening. And kindness allows us to respond with what will end suffering around what's happening. So if what is happening is this unpleasant thought, feeling, or emotion has taken over uh, our awareness, our consciousness, then the kind response is compassion. Is The kind response is forgiveness if it's a resentment. The kind response is mercy, is love. If awareness uh, is connected with some form of clinging, then the kind response is always letting go. There's always non-attachment. There's always release. We're not going to get rid of the body's uh, survival instinct of aversion towards pain. But we can develop Uh, compassion. We're not going to get rid of the mind and body's uh, creation of self, of this tendency of selfing, of self-centeredness. 
of, uh, that, that is so much at the core of doubt, the conceit that is at the core of doubt. We're not going to get rid of it, but with awareness, we see that it's impersonal. That it is the mind and body creating this self, experiencing this conceit. but that it is not who we are and it is not solid and it is not permanent and it's just uh, coming into being the way that a uh, rainbow comes into being when there is the appropriate uh, moisture and sunlight and uh, I don't know, whatever else, space I guess creates it. The uh, self comes into being when there is a body and a mind and perception and memory, consciousness. Just like a rainbow. Just as impermanent. Just as transient. the greatest act of kindness is to not take it personal. To relate to Mara with a forgiving and loving attitude. The Tibetans say, invite the demons in for tea. Never going to kick Mara's ass. Never. He is stronger than you. He, she, whatever it is. That aspect of mind. Uh, not going to beat it with violence, with effort, with... Only with love. We can only love Mara. We can only learn to just accept and forgive and be kind towards these hindrances. And then they're not so hindering anymore. As the Buddha and Mara continued their love affair, each time Mara would come back, the Buddha would simply say, I see you, Mara. Oh, fear again. I see you, fear. Oh, lust again. Ah, I see lust arising in my mind, my body. It feels like this. I see you relating to the experience rather than from it, rather than letting it push us into some unwise action or let us get us stuck in the uh, suffering of that all day. We relate to it. We try, right? We try and we fail and we try and we fail and this is our practice. And sometimes we succeed.
my father used to encourage, uh, who's, my father who's a meditation teacher, uh, Stephen Levine, he used to encourage people to relate to that quality of their mind with a sort of, um, a little bit of sense of humor and to just say big surprise when Mara re-arises. Rather than in sort of taking it so personally and like, I thought I was done with forgiveness. Why am I resentful again? I'm just like, oh, I'm pissed off again. Big surprise. Welcome back, Mara. I haven't seen you in three seconds. <laughs> Mara's so tricky. Like that question this morning about Mara whispering in your ear. They said, get up. <laughs> they totally already rang the bell. <laughs> Tricky. And, and sometimes like out of nowhere, the, the ninja attack. I was walking down the path, doing my practice. Out of nowhere, I was caught by a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> First I was lusting, and then I was angry, and then I was doubting my practice, and all of a sudden I was incredibly sleepy. <laughs> Fucking ninjas. That's about all I have to say. Uh, but I'll tell you one more story anyways. Not even a story, just an analogy. Of, uh, is everyone here familiar with the uh, spiritual epic Wizard of Oz? <laughs> is anybody not familiar with the story? Because I, I tend to just assume that people are, but... I just think so much of that is like the middle path, the yellow brick road. It's the middle path and it's, you know, Dorothy and Toto and her homies and they're just looking for, just trying to get, there's no place like home. I just want to come home to my heart, to my Buddha nature. But on, on this path uh, home, I'm attacked by flying monkeys, <laughs> wicked witches. And just as I start to get close and I can see Oz in the distance, the poppy field. <laughs> Nap time. You're getting too close. Take a nap. Have a good little nod. And then finally getting there and pulling back the curtain and seeing how insubstantial Mara the wizard is. This scared little person pushing the buttons, trying to keep up this self, this fear-based mentality.
And then we wake up and we're home in our bed. It was all a fever dream. I wish you well in this practice, on this path. I invite you to meet the witches and the flying monkeys and the poppy fields with uh, kindness. Be as friendly as possible towards yourself, towards your mind, towards Mara. Kill it with kindness. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.